Hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. This is Wade here in the podcast studio with my good friend and colleague, the Reverend Dr. Michael Berg, um, dressed very professionally today in his clericals, ready to teach and preach, with my good dear friend and colleague, Jason Oakland, who is a dressed like a true friend, yep. if I may say that, Jason. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and uh, and we have a returning guest. Now, we should have kept a tally of how many times we have had campus pastor Gregory Lyon on. So we could see. Like, yeah, we could put, we need forward. a chalkboard up here. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, chalkboard, whiteboard, something. It'd be good. I can go back and try to run those numbers. But we have returning because he did so well last time. And we're going to continue kind of the discussion a bit. Our new campus pastor, Nate Wardell. Is it okay to say Nate? You can say Nate. Nate. Yeah, that's great. Okay. Who is also dressed very nicely, um, I would say. And then myself, who I would say is dressed like a friend yes. to Jason and to the world. Yes. yes. <laughs> is that fair to say? Especially especially um, those who are less fortunate, charitable, charitable cases. Um, Jason, do you remember what Michael said about us earlier when he saw us? That he was... Deeply embarrassed was and that, ashamed. I think and ashamed. Yeah, I oh. think that those were both both in there. Yes, correct yep. sentiments. Yes. All right. So we are recording today. It is <laughs> December sixth. December sixth is a uh, important day. It's a holy day in the church here. It's a saint day. It's observed throughout almost all of Christianity. That calls for a variety of respect, <laughs> dignity, and decorum. Mm-hmm. I agree. I agree. Especially as you counterbalance um, the the unchecked capitalism that mm-hmm. Wade Amen. constantly likes to criticize Amen. from his well, I made this myself. point of view. Yeah. I, I, I like to consider what I'm wearing today, Michael. Where's that? Was that made in Vietnam, China, or Cambodia? I made this in my sewing room. Did you? Yes. I needed extra fabric. <clears throat> and so I am, as I was last year, to, I would say, the great joy of most people not named Michael. <laughs> I'm dressed like St. Nick, the great confessor of Christ and friend of the impoverished. I really doubt that in <laughs> in 4th century Turkey, where there was no, where there was no uh, air conditioning, that St. Nicholas of Myra uh, wore a heavy red outfit with fur on it and a stocking cap. Uh, I highly doubt it. I I think there, there's not conclusive evidence one way <laughs> or another. And I'm guessing that uh, if he was a bishop, he would not have wore red. I'm guessing also that Michael's going to now say that he didn't have a friend dressed like an elf. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't have as good a friend no, as Jason. No, he right. didn't. Yep, that's it. No, he if, didn't. if only he had. Yes. I mean, can, how serious we, are you going to take would, Arius... In the Council of Nicaea, slapping, or how, how serious are you going to take Nicholas at the Council of Nicaea, standing up for the truth of Christ Very against serious. Arius if he's wearing that outfit? Very serious. In most artist renderings, though, he is wearing red. Yes. If you're true. slapped by a man dressed the way that our colleague <laughs> is, it probably comes across even more strongly than if you're I'll give you that. And maybe he never even else. slapped Arius. We don't know for sure, but we do know. I imagine. That within 200 years after his death, they were building a church in his honor. Yeah. He was a man who brought joy. Yeah. A man who brought joy. That was a great guy. 
And so he uh, did get in trouble for that slap, though. Supposedly, yeah. Uh, All those records come later. I I imagine him taking off taking off his glove one finger at a time. The white Christmas colored glove, you and mean? then like <laughs> you are. Uh, you would agree, Michael, that that part of the fun of church history and history and historical customs is that we don't always have to be the naysayers, mm-hmm. the nitpickers. Mm-hmm. We can enjoy the richness that the church has brought us culturally with these things, mm-hmm. right? So sometimes we say, maybe that didn't happen, but a lot of good Christians have enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Huh? That's yeah. what I say. I enjoyed it when you gave me an orange. Yeah. That's what I enjoyed. <laughs> Thank it. you. Uh, Nate was telling me earlier that's kind of how he approaches Easter. Maybe it didn't happen. <laughs> you know? But it's really... It's a real nice sentiment. Yeah. It's a good segue into uh, heritage and, and decay, which is For our main record, topic. For I do today. believe Easter happened. Yeah. 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 I, uh, I will not get to get the, this produced tonight because I get to drive to two volleyball practices. But I will say, and you'll receive it, dear listeners, a little late. Happy St. Nick's Day. And, uh, and remember, celebrating St. Nick's Day is remembering Christ, whom he confessed. So... Or, you know, giving attention to uh, some professors on, you know, <laughs> needed a little extra boost in their ego. I want my orange Whatever. back, Michael. <laughs> I want my orange back. The, uh, and so we're going to be discussing today, we're a little bit further along, um, in the Bonhoeffer book, uh, Bonhoeffer's Ethics. And uh, I'll be interested to see what Michael had on this, because I said I thought this would be in your wheelhouse. So we'll see. Um, the, uh, and I shared again the discussion sheet I use with you guys if you're interested. Um, but the, the, um, the chapter is Heritage and Decay. And it really he's talking about history and decay and then how we go to history. Um, so without stretching that out too long, um, we've already gone a while with the intro. I will go ahead and remind you we are part of the 1517 Podcast Network. You can go to 1517.org. Lots of good stuff over there to check out. And uh, I will ask my friend and helper and Joybringer, fellow Joybringer, Jason, to read our disclaimer. This show doesn't speak for our churches, our church bodies, or our employers. To be honest, much of the time, it probably doesn't speak for us. We will be thinking out loud a lot, so approach what you hear with a healthy skepticism because, well, as a responsible resident of planet Earth, that's probably what you should generally do with almost everything. If you find yourself getting too worked up, tune out, look around, and realize you're just listening to a podcast. Yes, that's right, a podcast. So go live free, friends, and don't let us get in the way. And that brings us to the free-for-all where we discuss the pressing issues of the day. And let's just do this as a quick one, gentlemen, but this will come out sometime in the week of the second Sunday of Advent, assuming that I produce it, um, which I plan to do. And so I just thought briefly we could kind of go around, and uh, Advent is an interesting season of the church year, and I would say since Vatican II, but maybe even before that in America, you could correct me, Michael, it's kind of a season that's kind of... Without an identity. Yeah. Um, people coming from a lot of uh, 
angles. And, and maybe Advent always was a little that, but it just seems like it's more that um, now. And so uh, I'm, I'm curious, gentlemen, just if, if we each had one or two things, favorite thing about Advent or, or something that if someone were asking about Advent, you would go, man, this is the great thing about Advent. This is the, um, <clears throat> the thing I really encourage you to pay some attention to. And I'll go first to get it started. Um, I'd say Advent has some really good hymns. And uh, sometimes they get short shrift because we jam Christmas hymns in there already, and I'm not saying you can't put some Christmas hymns in there. I know Michael will be like, why are you dressed like Santa Claus <laughs> in Advent then? I'm dressed like, like St. Nick. It's a liturgical day of the year. Dressed like something. Uh, <laughs> but um, I would say that Advent has some really good hymns and a lot that don't even make the hymnals. Um, and I think it's um, a lot of those hymns come from the time before we kind of got really confused about what Advent is. Um, and so some of them deal with texts that maybe don't come up in a lot of other hymnody as well. And so I would say uh, hymns would be a big one. To that point, and then I'll let Doug go around. Uh, there are some Christmas hymns that maybe don't make it into the Christmas season, but that fit really well anyway. Like in a hymnal, a lot of them could go both ways. Like uh, uh, of the Father's love begotten could be Epiphany or whatever. You know, those would be. This is an opportunity to have some of those more serious Christmas hymns put in Advent. Mm -hmm. Jason, you want me to go next? It seems like Mike established this direction. No, I was. Uh, go ahead. Yeah. All right, I'll go. Um, I I do uh, appreciate the the countdown or count up aspect of of Advent, which I think um, is helpful to the anticipation part of it, the the waiting part of it, um, and and I think that's a that's kind of a, a neat thing that you see you know with advent wreaths and you know you could talk advent calendars and sometimes those are you know fun thing type of things but uh but i think that underscoring that idea of anticipation and waiting i think that is a a neat way to do some of that so i'll i'll, I'll say those type of customs nate anything that comes to mind yeah, I think I'm probably if you say, boy, people sure have people have too many uh ways of celebrating Advent. You can celebrate it like, you know, Vatican II, you can celebrate it as kind of an extension of end times, you can celebrate it as like a pre-Christmas thing. I'm going to make it worse maybe. I I had to explain this the other day like what is Advent all about? And I said, maybe the best simplest for me is Advent is like the season of the Magnificat. Advent is the season of you know, it works so well because right, that's what Mary's doing after she has the Annunciation, right, with the angel Gabriel. She's, she's just sitting there waiting for this baby to be born, and she knows all the great things, but she, but they're not here yet. Think, well, that's maybe where my heart ought to be, too. So um, practically, one thing I like to do is split up Luther's commentary on the Magnificat and just read through it every Advent, um, which, if you can get your hands on it, is just awesome. He wrote it for one of the electors, right? So, like, you know what? God's going to give us some undeserved gifts soon. So let's not take them yeah. for granted, but let's also uh, not think that we've deserved them. And it gets my heart in just the right spot for Christmas. I will say then, in addition, you have something to say about that, but I'll no, say. That, I, I like it. I was going to say one of the things with the Magnificat that's nice, too, is it's um, it's not just a Christmas song, right? It's yeah. a Christian life song. Yeah. yeah. 
God looked down on the most humble things, and he wants to bless them. That's yeah, me. and he's going to do these things in this child. Yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, then I'll also say, I don't mind Christmas sneaking into Advent so much. Uh, maybe it doesn't line up perfectly with like the, the readings and the hymns, and stuff, but I just think there's so many wonderful things to say about Jesus' birth that I'm all right thinking about some of those ahead of time and uh, getting my mind right so that then when I hear Luke 2, then when I hear the Christmas readings, John 1, I've got some like marinating, right? I've been thinking about this. I've been marinating and I'm like fully hyped. Um, I kind of like in the same way that like college football, there's like a month before the college football playoff starts. So it's like, okay, you're going to see a lot of coverage. And then when you see the game, you got, you got backstories, you got people's, you know, human interest things from the team. You got this coach's backstory. I kind of want that for Christmas, right? That I've had some time to meditate on it. Now Christmas day's here and I'm like ready to take it on full blast. But, but that, you can, whatever, you can go either way. You can accept that or throw me out of the podcast studio for that. <laughs> no, and I think that fits. And I, one of the things I've, I've seen people doing more, which I appreciate, um, and that I think um, fits Advent well, and hopefully, right, the new hymnal, we're kind of moving away from making those last weeks of the church year, the end times. And I think that's what kind of confused people even a little bit more with Advent, um, is that there's a way to do Advent well and... Um, Mike, you preached about this the other day and you talked about four advents. Um, but to get this kind of incarnational view that Christ who came to us in the flesh still comes with word and sacrament, right, in meaningful, uh, <clears throat> tangible ways and will come <clears throat> in the flesh at the end and that this, um, these three things already in, in God's view of things are one, right, that God's outside of time <clears throat> and that all these are for us and it becomes a good time to connect these different things, I think, for Christians as well. Michael, any thoughts you got on that? Yeah, I mean, it, advice to, uh, unsolicited advice to, uh, especially young preachers, don't preach on consumerism, preach on the incarnation, right? Uh, if, if, if you think that your Advent message needs to be a light in a dark world, uh, well then, light a this is a time, yeah, sometimes you have to curse the darkness, but it's usually better to light something, right? So be, preach the incarnation that, uh, and uh, the profundity of all of that. I like that. And uh, I think there's simple ways you can balance the Christmas Advent thing. For instance, it's a little bit more work, but, you know, you put up the, you put up the tree, that's great. Uh, keep it blue and then, then change it for Christmas. That's what we did. Um, you know, there's there's ways where you can blend this and, and do it right, I think. And, and you're right. The, the problem is not so much with Advent, but uh, kind of an obsession with, which I think came from the Presbyterians, uh, no offense to them, but uh, our old hymnal in the Wisconsin Synod, for one, took the, the uh, last Sundays of the church year and really did last judgment and all that kind mm -hmm. of stuff. Instead of letting it play out like all saints at the beginning, if you are Reformation, that's fine. And you have that last uh, Sunday of the church here, which fits well with end times, but then it blends in a little bit easier that way if you're not constantly eight weeks in a row doing doing Old Testament prophecy on the last day, right? It becomes very difficult for the preacher to do that, and it's so easy then to fall into easy law preaching, which is, oh, the world, all they care about is Santa Claus and presents and stuff like that, hey, which is, hey. yeah. Not fair. Well, this is a lighted, lighting a candle. I wouldn't have lit the candle the way you did, but highlighting St. Nicholas, you know, mm -hmm. yeah, that kind of stuff. 
Thank you. When, yeah. I'll say when I saw you, I pulled up a book I had that was very dusty off my shelf that had a section on St. Nicholas. And I, I read this, that at least in some parts of Western Europe, they like to give the gifts on St. Nicholas Day yep. so they could save Christmas for celebration of the Incarnation. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Maybe yeah. uh, maybe nobody has to give any Christmas gifts this year there because you, you already gave me an orange. There, there you go. That would <laughs> be great. save some money. I will yeah, let your family great. know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, lest we go too long with Advent, gentlemen, I thank you for those insights. And we can make our way to heritage and decay. And that brings us to our main topic, uh, where we are still in Bonhoeffer's Ethics. Um, we are using the Fortress Reader's Edition. We are going to be in Heritage and Decay, which um, is the second chapter, or excuse me, the third chapter, um, Bonhoeffer's Ethics. And he's going to be looking at, and, and once again, it's just helpful to remember the context in which Bonhoeffer is writing this. He's writing this towards the end of his life, um, under fascism, under Nazism. Um, and we think of like the use of history that took place in the 20th century, um, whether that be like the kind of the Western liberal optimistic, like history as this arc of progress. Um, you know, now that we have reason and science, you know, the sky's the limits. We're going to have the Jetsons and <clears throat> flying around, whatever. And politically, the Weimar Republic, everything's going to be great. Yeah. Right. And then you get fascism, which has this view of history of kind of this like notions from the past, this folkish type history that is going to be um, restored. Uh, the Third Reich or Reich, right, is saying there were previous Reichs or Reiches um, that were going to be like. Um, you get to the East with Bolshevism, uh, this like Marxist ideal of this historical progress of the, the workers, um, the proletariat eventually coming to power, seizing the means of production, and a, a near utopian right state that might develop, and so there's there's all these views, these these appeals to history, and you're also dealing with the kind of early pangs of postmodern uh, postmodernism that's saying, <clears throat> look, like we had all these high hopes, we thought modernity was going to do this, and look what we've unleashed. <clears throat> um, this is not good. And so this is going to build a little bit on what Jason and I talked about in the first episode on this, where we got it, um, Bonhoeffer talked about when philosophy um, does away with, with the metaphysical and with revelation, it becomes unable to deal with the whole person. Um, uh, and it, it only can appeal deal with aspects of the person, which leads to disorder. Um, and I think we see that in this chapter with um, history or with heritage or, or you can't you can't deal with the whole person individually or the body politic right and so what i'd like to start with is just a um before you before you get started yes you know, i think we shouldn't be so down on this you know utopian idea because you know what happened on the 31st of july 2022 george jetson was born was that really that's his that was like his legit birthday no so way think, yeah seriously so so I mean, how did you know? So that? it still may come. 
It's still made. It, right. I mean, we I might... did not mention the Jetsons before this episode. How right. did you know that? I I heard it. I think I think it was on the radio where I heard it and it was just Did you used to watch the Jetsons when mom cut your hair? <laughs> well, I definitely <laughs> used to watch the Jetsons. I don't know uh, uh. during that time, but uh yeah. So, I mean, hey, we might be on the very verge of it and this might all be for naught, but then again, probably not. Yeah. Okay, this is a helpful point. Yes. And I respect that knowledge. <laughs> um and uh, so what I'd like to, to point out then, I'm going to throw this first to Michael, because this is what I thought would be in your wheelhouse. Okay, and then you can, you can pass if you're not that interested. This is on page 52, 52 in our version. And he's talking about Catholicism, um, maybe historically having been a little bit stronger on the incarnation, Protestantism maybe a little bit stronger on the cross, namely on proclamation. Where Christ becoming human is more strongly in the foreground of Christian awareness, there one seeks reconciliation between Christianity and antiquity. So with, like, Greco-Roman history as being caught up in the story, and, and you can just think of the practices and apostolic secession, right? <clears throat> There's this historical connection, because he argues elsewhere that, like, Germany, France, etc., just don't really have much of a history before Christ, in the same way that the Greeks and Romans did, right? Um, so, once again, where Christ becoming human is more strongly in the foreground of Christian awareness, there one seeks reconciliation between Christianity and antiquity. Where the cross of Christ governs Christian proclamation, and think of, um, in German theological kind of emphases at this time, um, preaching is still very much important, although sometimes the existential is emphasized, the text has been questioned. <clears throat> um, so where the cross of Christ governs Christian proclamation, there the strong emphasis is on the break between Christ and antiquity. Right, That Christ comes in and there's this new thing. But because Christ is both, and this is where I think you'll be interested, Michael, and I think this is when Lutherans do Lutheranism right. This is our sweet spot, hopefully. <clears throat> but because Christ is both the incarnate and the crucified and wills to be recognized as both equally, the proper reception of the historical heritage of antiquity is still an open task for the West. The Germans and Western peoples will be brought closer together um, by the search for a common solution to this problem. Um, and the sentence that leads before that is then, antiquity becomes historical heritage in the true sense only through Christ. And I think here, as we look at heritage and decay in history, and I, I think this is in light of your worship class, but just other work you've done too, Michael, there can be the appeal to things simply because they're ancient, right? And attractiveness to things <clears throat> because they're ancient. We see lots of evangelicals. Um, who, when they decide to leave evangelicalism, it, they just assume the Greeks or the Latins, right? The Roman Catholicism or Eastern Orthodoxy, that's the way to go. They've got the old things. Um, but old things in and of themselves don't have much value apart from Christ. It's Christ that makes in antiquity matter for us as Christians. Um, on the flip side, <clears throat> when people in Roman Catholicism or Eastern Orthodoxy sometimes get tired of the old things, they're attracted to proclamation. It may be a more Jesus-centered proclamation than they are 
used to. Um, but for the church and for the Christian, we have Christ who is both incarnate, and this fits with our Advent discussion before, who is both incarnate, he came with the first Advent, but then also is present in word and sacrament today. I'll throw it to you first, Michael, and then anyone else can jump in. But I found that to be an interesting thought. Yeah, I, there's a lot of things we could, we could go down the road. I don't want to repeat myself over what we talked about in previous episodes too much. But uh, an appeal to, to antiquity is a considered a logical fallacy, but so is appeal to what is new. Right? Old and new are neutral terms, right? And uh, if you are only living in the past, um, there is a there is a huge uh, temptation to follow fall into uh, either a um, empty ritual or some sort of law where. Um, you know, the, the guy who, who presides with an uh, English accent, even though he's from Baltimore, um, you know, and, and has no pastoral touch, that's a, that's a problem. But the, the very obvious, especially to Roman Catholics, if you have an honest conversation with a thoughtful Roman Catholic, the very obvious arrogance of Protestants, um, it, and that, that they can throw out everything that just seem to be a little bit musty um, causes a lot of problems as well. Um, I would maybe even argue more problems. Um, and that is not, <clears throat> that is a modern thing, not a Christian thing, right? The idea of this unlimited progress so we can figure it out. Um, to, to, the, to the cross slash preaching to the incarnation, I think th that's, I never thought about it that way. Um, but it's very practical if you detach Christianity from uh, the incarnation, and I'm going to expand incarnation to mean both an historical reality. Jesus was born when Caesar Augustus was, was emperor, and Quirinius was governor of Syria, and he was um, crucified under Pilate when Tiberius was governor, and he uh, rose from the dead. Um, as an historical event, um, but also include in that uh, the physical means of grace, that um, this stuff actually happened, and it's not just uh, uh, it's not just a knowledge that is zapped to me, um, which which is not just Gnostic, but often there are some Christians in their philosophy, like there's certain basic beliefs that God just gives you, which we can argue about that at a different time. But um, it's, it's nebulous, and it's not concrete. So uh, over and over again, I, I will tell the students, like, on April 18th, 1978, I was baptized, and that is an historical reality. Mm -hmm. and, and whether I have a good Jesus day or a bad Jesus day, you can't undo that. That's what we mean by incarnational reality. Yeah, um, And that's not opposed to the cross because the that's the whole point of the incarnation for us, for, for saving us. Um, but yeah, I, I wonder if, if, the, if what he's after here is not just a move from Catholic to Protestant. I, 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 that was odd to me that he did that. 
but um, I'm not in his situation, and he's smarter than me. Well, and I think in his day, if you think of what was happening at German universities with theology, and I mean, you get to, I mean, think of, um, you know, people like Boltman and others where it's not so much how important it is that the text is true, yeah. but, you know, this is the preached, re this existential yeah. experience, which ironically is, I think, where a lot of American evangelicalism is heading to. You yeah. know? And and from our context, you know, we, we don't see it that way. We, we tend to see, oh, the, the Protestants got their fundamental, fundamentalists. But from his point of view, I, my point is, is that the, uh, the split is between somebody who thinks Christianity is an intellectual, it's an intellectual exercise at best, um, but it's it's the questions of the the reality of the presence of God, both in the sacrament and vocation in my life right now, and the historical presence of Christ are indifferent, right? It's a, like you said, an existential type of Christianity, even an existential resurrection, whatever that means, right? Um, and uh, it's head knowledge, and, and that's why probably you, you were saying that this is up my alley is, Underneath all of that is the the mind body problem, right? You are in the modern period is always going to split the physical from the spiritual, right? And um, we can try to maintain the spiritual without the physical. Well, I don't that that's not how God made us as the individual, and that's not how God made us in uh, body body politic. And a lot of this is coming up, bubbling up in our culture right now, right? Am I an individual or am I a part of a group? Um, is our main ethic, you as an individual, and your ability to uh, produce and survive and all by yourself? Or, or do your thoughts and actions have ramifications to those around you, right? I, those are all uh, physical, spiritual questions, right? And, and then you add the epistemological question, how do you know what truth is? Is it just head knowledge and autonomous reason? Or is it is it something more? I mean, those are those are things that he's wrestling with in a different context, but they're still there. I know, get there with Ratio, yeah. Um, Jason, Nate, any thoughts you guys have on that? Otherwise, we move on to something different. But I, I wonder. <clears throat> so, like this idea of the connection to antiquity and the break with antiquity and the like. There, I wonder too. You know, how much of that? You know, regard regardless of the Catholic versus Protestant Lutheran approach. Um, the idea that, you know, the antiquity exist was in existence at the coming of Christ, right? And so much of that was there, and and a lot of that was um, brought into and you know incorporated into Christian thinking and the like. And, the very and, language of the scriptures. Yeah, yeah, very language of the scriptures and 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 that type of thing. Although there was plenty of it that was left behind as right. well, which you know he doesn't. <coughs> necessarily talk about that or acknowledge that whereas you know he's saying that the these other european groups it was in being brought into connection with christ that they were not only brought into connection to the gospel and the church but also in that connection to antiquity and i think that's maybe kind and of then a, their their heritage and their history yes springs from that yes yeah. exactly and that you know it's and it's only in Christ and that connection to the gospel that, um, that, you know, that there is really this thing as the, the West, right? Yeah. The, the, this thought of the, you know, Western world or whatever. And it's not that there weren't people there before <coughs> right. doing things, 
but what we know of them is limited and just what remains of that uh, is limited so that what became the West, all of mm-hmm. these, all of these, if you want to say Volkish <clears throat> histories or heritages Which are centered in Christ. Uses, is yeah. Right, Volkish. And obviously Volkish. it makes sense because that's, you know, late 19th century, early 20th century, that term's being used a lot. And then of course used by the Nazis. Um, but this, then for the West to, um, when it makes turns from that, the West becomes less West, right? And I think he's arguing against the notion that the West becomes more West by turning from that. And he's going to do that, for instance, with human rights, where he says, yeah, the French Revolution and this discussion of reason and whatever did help enshrine human rights. But then he'll get back to, but there's no human rights apart from Christ. And he doesn't mean by that that you only have human rights if you believe in Christ. He means Christ is the foundation of human rights. Uh, Nate, any thoughts you had on that before I throw other stuff? Yeah, just I. what I so appreciate about this is obviously Bonhoeffer, super smart, knows his history, knows his philosophy, knows his politics. Same thing with the guys in this podcast studio. Like It's super cool if you want to take it from that angle, but you don't have to. And that's what I love about the way he ri- he's written this is you can say, <clears throat> why should I take history seriously? I don't need to know the entire history of Western Europe from memory. Jesus took history seriously mm-hmm. when the Holy Spirit inspired St. Luke to write down the birth account of Jesus. It's just what you guys were saying before. He, he recorded the historical setting. We would do well to take history just as seriously as the Holy Spirit does. And then not to idolize it because the Holy Spirit also in, through St. Luke recorded how, seat, or how, how excuse me, Pontius Pilate you know, condemned Jesus to death. And so let's not say that it's all, you know, uh, I just love that he's essentially saying with, with all of the, his present context in, in 20th century Germany, he's saying what the scriptures say about history, its value, and also it's like some warnings about taking it too far. Yeah. And he, yeah. he hits on in there a little bit later on 66. Um, he says, the loss of past and future leaves life vacillating between the most brutish enjoyment of the moment and adventurous risk-taking. And I think he gets it there, like you're mentioning, with that Christ has come into history, and this is this is not in the corny way of we, you know, I mean, like history is his story. Because <clears throat> there's a lot of other important stuff in history. We don't just have students take church history here. But um, but that, <clears throat> that is, that Christ doing that is <laughs> what makes history history, what imbues it um, <clears throat> with Right, the the heavenly and the the temporal, <clears throat> um, becoming one. And so he gets at you have the French Revolution, and there's there's like there's this move beyond Christianity, and we're going to give ourselves to reason, and this is going to be great, <clears throat> and go perfectly. And so he says on fifty eight, ratio reason became a working hypothesis, a heuristic principle, how you know things, and thus led to the incomparable rise of technology. And I think this is just so true of our own day. The technology of the modern West has freed itself from every kind of service. Its essence is not service but mastery, mastery over nature. And he got it that it before technology for much of history was in the service of a master, like a king or the church or a community is going to use technology to build or to do this thing <clears throat> in service to those things. And that reason kind of set technology free to be just technology and technology becomes mastery nature. And you might go, well, how does my iPhone master nature? Well, in all sorts of ways um, that you are not, uh, um, your life is radically different than it was in the past. 
because of that. And that's not to say your iPhone is bad. Um, but it does help detach you from a lot of things and maybe from, from past and future. It's Henry Ford right, famously says, history is bunk. And this becomes kind of <clears throat> this um, 20th century view of we move beyond that. <clears throat> but he gets at the problem of that that comes then is when you have no past and you have no future, um, we can become uh, either incredibly fearful or in incredibly irresponsible. Right? It's either YOLO, <clears throat> I'm going to be super adventurous, or it's anything can happen and I'm terrified. And he gets at people then um, will exploit these fears um, and people <coughs> will surrender almost everything out of fear um, or people will seek to venture things they never would have done before because they're, they've been removed from past and history, um, future. And I think it's inter interesting even in our own day I think there's maybe somewhat of a corrective to that happening, but in a weird way of we like to say you're on the wrong side of history. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, there's like some recognition that history matters. And a lot of the fights now about cultural stuff are appealing to history. So I think we're starting to get like the past matters. Um, it's definitely a postmodern uh, way of... It, it becomes a tool of power, right? But and so it, we're not, history does matter, and so it's still not the rootedness in history that Bonhoeffer's talking about. Nobody's going to take a history class, but it still matters, yeah. Right, <laughs> right. Um, but any thoughts you guys have on that? I guess I'll just throw in, in, in last um, to Nate's point. With um, on page sixty-five, he says, "Having lost its unity that was created by the form of Jesus Christ, the West is confronted by nothingness." And he talks about Nietzsche and other stuff. Life, history, family, people, language, faith, the list could go on forever because nothingness spares nothing. All fall victim to nothingness. And don't we see that in our own day, right, that this nothingness has made its way. And often, as Michael notes, with power claims into all these things. And the church, at the end, he says, right, the church is, is the place for people to come for refuge from this. Not because the church is the place for politics or whatever else, but church is where all these things mean something. And all these things have their meaning in Christ, right? What is justice but what Christ has come to bring? Um, what is family but what God brings us into through baptism? Um, so I'll stop there, and we have roughly about seven minutes, and I'll throw it to whoever wants to jump yeah, in. Let me just one, one, there's a lot going on here, of course. Uh, mm -hmm. The idea of, I think, Jesus Christ being the Logos, right? Like, whether you're a believer or not. And I think that's why he says ratio, ratio <laughs> yeah. instead of reason, yeah. Right, like there's something there. Uh, that you still live as if there was a God and that God became man and ordered things in a reasonable way. And he gets at that. How do you mean that? How do you mean that? Well, and he gets at that. He gets at that when he talks about the godlessness of the West is a specifically Christian godlessness, right? That it's our godlessness is a godlessness that's without a specific God and even angry at a specific God. Yeah. Like if you go on Reddit to the right. atheist subreddit, they're mad at, the Christian God. Yeah, now, they might mad. not understand who the Christian God really is, <laughs> Sure, but it's very specific. But yeah, I'll let You'll you guys... Let, you, you want to, if you go around saying that, you know, words are uh, not reliable, <coughs> they don't give us reliable access to truth, but here you are using words. Hmm. Uh, you're going to criticize the morality of the Old Testament God, um, but without the Old Testament God, you have the ancient Near East paganism. You know, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Like you are... 
you act as if there is, if you say that there's only uh, uh, stuff, materia, <coughs> naturalism, then um, you have to throw out words like good, evil, love. Those are all just uh, things that we use to describe what's going on in biology. But yet you use love. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. you, you are. So I think that's what he's after here. What I'm interested in is, I wonder what, do you have the German on this, Wade? I might heuristic. have it in my office somewhere. But what is what word does he use for heuristic? So you had said that's how we know things, but if he means a heuristic, or the translator does, is a shortcut to knowledge, right? Which is kind of what you said. Right. Yeah. That's kind so of so reason. I wonder. There's something there that uh, kind of it's, the you know the, the presupposition that things are rational. Yeah. That we like there's must be laws to nature. That there's yeah. that we can figure out the underlying like like you know. For so many things, if we just keep pushing at it, there's going to be something that makes sense behind this. And, we and can I do wonder what, what, if he was after ratio reason, being that heuristic, that that's the thing that that's the shortcut to knowledge, and and that means I don't have to deal with the God question, I don't have to deal with the morality question, I don't have to deal with the truth question, I don't have to deal with uh, the incarnation and history. Because my ratio just skips over that. It's my shortcut to where I need to go. I wonder if that's what he's after. I, yeah, I think as a lens. Yeah, this is like, the default. I I have like just put out of thought. I don't even go to the metaphysical, you know, whether it be um, or. Yeah, I think because you can use reason and not. I'm not going to go to the things that are not empirical. How about that? And, and it gives me an excuse. I can just shortcut right. through that. I'm wondering what the, what he what it is in German. So I have to look there's it up. an assignment for you. <laughs> what I appreciated is like so my mental image is this thing that you're describing where I can put out of mind anything that's not empirical, the metaphysical. I can put I only have my reason to to be my thing. It turns into this is my mental picture a vacuum cleaner, and it just mm -hmm. sucks the value out of family. It sucks the value out, of, and this is where he's saying it spares nothing. Right? It's this vacuum <laughs> that sucks the value of anything. Are you going to go home for Christmas? Do you love your family? They mean nothing if all you have is reason, you know? Yeah. And so I think the, the uh, what do you say, the disconnect between what Mike's pointing out, right? No, you do care about your family. But you do, yeah. <laughs> and, but you say this worldview, this, this reason only thing, it's, it's going to suck the value out of family and language and courage and love. Yeah. Go and ahead. I think like uh, an apology, the, the most the most uh, useful phrase in apologetics, and what I mean by that is you're just talking to somebody who is doubting, struggling, or, or a cynic is, but you don't live your life that way. But you, I think we said that last time, but you don't live your life that way. Yeah. And so he, he gets at, and he's talking right in this time, this tumultuous time in the 20th century to be in the West in general, but also to be in Germany. And on page 67, he says then, the most astonishing observation one makes today, um, because the reason has failed, and we don't have Christ. And, you know, when you get to fascism, you're largely left with assertion, right? And, and, and assertion of power, assertion of truth. So to the question, what is left, there is only one answer, fear of nothingness. <clears throat> and I think we see this in, in young people today all the time. And, and you see this with the rates of... Um, anxiety and depression uh, and I don't blame them um, in many ways for this so fear of nothingness the most interesting observation one makes today is that people surrender everything in the face of nothingness their own judgment 
their humanity, their neighbors, where this fear is exploited without scruple, there are no limits to what can be achieved. And we see that in the state, we see that in the church, we see that in the marketplace. He goes on the next page. The Christian churches stand in the middle of the dissolution of all that exists as protectors of the heritage of the Middle Ages and the Reformation, but above all as witnesses to the miracle of God in Jesus Christ yesterday, today, and forever. Further down, justice, truth, science, art, why, why Lutheran Liberal Arts College? Let me start again. <laughs> Justice, truth, science, art, culture, humanity, freedom, and patriotism, after long wanderings, find the way back to their origin. The more the church holds to its eternal or its central message, the more effective it is. Its suffering is infinitely more dangerous to the spirit of destruction than the political power that it may still retain. The church makes clear with its message of the living Lord Jesus Christ that it is not simply concerned with preserving what has been handed down from the past. It forces the custodians of power in particular to listen and change their ways. But it does not push away those who come to it and seek to be near it. The church leaves to God's rule of the world whether God will allow the custodians of power to succeed and whether the church, preserving its difference and yet joining in sincere alliance with those powers, may pass on to the future the historical heritage laden with the blessing and guilt of the forebears. And I, I just get some Luther um, theology of the cross there, that a theologian of the cross calls a thing what it is, and that the job of the church um, in this way, in Christ, is rootedness, and not a rootedness that's... Um, conservative in the sense of just preserving how we have done things at this point or that point, <clears throat> um, but a um, one that is uh, incarnational, right? It's found in Christ who is uh, in every age. And I, I think he just wraps that up beautifully, but I'll give closing thought to someone else and then I have to go. St. Nick has to go teach <laughs> about the adiaphoristic controversy. <laughs> I just love at the end the way from what you read, he's saying the church's primary task is still always going to be proclaiming the incarnate, crucified, risen Lord. And that is the most effective way to preach that consistently. That's the most effective way to push back on the nothingness. But don't neglect all the things that come next. So you proclaim the crucified Lord, the risen Lord. And all of a sudden, you still have a to-do list of things that you can do to fight for meaning in the world around you. You don't just throw up your hands and say, I preached on Sunday. I'm done with my concern for my neighbor, right? Yeah. I love the combination of the, the the list of things you said, the patriotism, the freedom, the humanity, combined with the, the preaching of, of the cross. I'll, I'll just say maybe, you know, you get to see, you know, it's like, oh, this is interesting and abstract. And then there are times where you get to see glimpses of exactly what he's talking about, this idea, this willingness to sacrifice everything, um, which, you know, he was living that at the time of, yep. you know, Germany during the And not World just War for II Christ, and, but for neighbor. Right, yeah. yeah. And, I mean, you saw some of that to a degree, like, <laughs> through the pandemic and with things going on with COVID and stuff, how challenging that was and how willing people were in one way or the other to, you know, 
turn their turn their backs and yeah sacrifice all that so it's just kind of kind of curious to to see that play out when it does yeah. well i better better wrap up so i can get around but i thank you guys hopefully we can pick back up at some point with a little more i enjoy it but to our listeners happy saint nick's day hopefully i get this produced this week definitely merry christmas if i take weeks somehow <laughs> um but mostly we pray that during this season you'll join us in continuing to let the bird fly Another round, I said, I'm out.